Good morning, everybody. Today's passage is in Nehemiah, chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to actually be focusing on verse 10, but I'll back up a little bit and give you some uh, kind of background info as to what's, what's going on here. All right. So today's message is, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And this, just as a heads up, is kind of a sequel, you might say, to uh, the last message I did, which was on love. I had originally decided to focus on joy last time and then got sidetracked and focused on love and uh, presented that. And so this time, I'm actually focusing on my original intent, joy. And I searched all over. I was like, what is that scripture? The joy of the Lord is my strength. And um, of course, that's not exactly how it's worded. Uh, and then I found it, I'm like, in Nehemiah, I thought for sure it was in Psalms. And then uh, found it was in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. And we always use that, the second part, really, it's, uh, I guess you would say, part B of verse 10. And that's, again, what's always quoted. It's always, you know, sung about. Uh, that's what we always talk about. But... Seeing the whole verse and then realizing the chapter and context uh, really brought this into focus because the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's kind of a, uh, a fun jingle, you might say, that we do. Uh, it's a, a child song or you know, just something that we say, like, you know, uh, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands type thing. And again, reading uh, verse 10 and then reading the chapter and context gives it a little bit more depth. So I'm going to start... I'll give you some pre uh, a little preface, and then we'll read through part of chapter 8. We won't read the whole thing, but just up to verse 10. So Nehemiah starts where the people of Israel have come back to Jerusalem after their uh, enslavement into Babylon. So um, they had been a, a great mighty nation. They kept sinning against God, and God finally sent the Babylonian Empire to conquer them and carry them all away. Uh, they, you know, the Babylonians burned their towns, um, did many horrible things. And so they were taken away and were in exile in Babylon for quite some time. And then some of the people were allowed to go back and begin to rebuild Jerusalem. And in chapter 8, this is where we get, and if, if you're ever curious, you can actually cross both Ezra and Nehemiah together to get kind of a full picture as to what's been going on. But this is just kind of a preface. All right, so in verse 1 it says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book, the law of Moses, that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they had heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. That's a long sermon. Today's sermon won't be that long. 
uh, in the presence of all the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooded platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood, and they list a bunch of people and so forth. And we're going to kind of skip down uh, so I don't have to read all the names. Uh, Let's see, verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, and he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now again, this is a preface. This is kind of a backstory as to, and it will explain verse 10 in just a minute. So keep in mind that before the people were carried away to Babylon, were they a faithful people or had they fallen into sin heavily? They had fallen into sin heavily, and that's why God had punished them by allowing them to be carried away to Babylon. He had warned them over and over and over and over again through many of the prophets, and eventually it was, you know, it's time for your spanking. You have to get carried off to Babylon. And so people in Babylon, they do get to come back to Israel, but keep in mind that they really hadn't been following God before they went to Babylon. It was very difficult to follow God. In fact, it was impossible to do any of the sacrifices and so forth that they were required to do while in Babylon. And so they've made it back to Jerusalem, and a lot of the people are unaware that there is a law of God, that some of these things exist. They know that God is, and they kind of worship him, but they don't understand fully until the law of Moses is read. And note how they respond. They say amen and amen. They lift up their hands and then they bow their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is the Levites were explaining to the people what was being read. Again, it was... um, Almost like a sermon, you might say. This is what God says, this is what he means by it, and this is why he's saying what he's saying. In Nehemiah, verse 9, who was the governor of Ezra, uh, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn and weep, for all the people wept as they heard the word of the law. Verse 10, then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Okay, there's that little section that we always say. But note the people's response. For all the people wept as they heard the word of the law of the Lord. He said, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so, how do those two things connect? And more importantly, what does that mean for us today? So, let's first talk about their response, and then we'll talk about why God responded the way he did. So, When people are aware, when they become aware of sin, there are two responses uh, that could happen. You have a guilty conscience, which 
God gives everybody a conscience. Uh, so even unsaved people essentially know right from wrong, uh, and they will feel pangs inside when they do something that they know is wrong, uh, even if it's extreme. And then you have repentance, and there is a difference between the two, and that's why God addressed the people as he did. So first, guilty conscience. So guilt always brings about a response, but it's kind of a halfway response. So with guilt, we realize we did something wrong, and now we need to fix it. That's guilt's response. Uh, and religions of the world react to sin with guilt. Uh, you can go down the list of all of the religions of the world, and you can see how they are responding in the flesh to some form of guilt or another. And a lot of times it's based upon um, not only a guilty conscience, but just a list of rules, you might say, in some cases. Uh, be it you know, Mormons, Muslims, etc., and they all try to atone for that guilt themselves. They all try to do better. And that's, again, guilt's response is, oh, gosh, I messed up. I will do better next time. And I will do this so I can be better. And so it's kind of this 10-step ten, uh, process. Improve yourself. And really, that's kind of what guilt does to you. Unfortunately, guilt is a self-feeding monster in the sense that uh, you're going to fall short. No matter what you do, no matter, no matter how hard you try, you will fall short. Now, for a lot of people, that spurs them on to you know, even do better and to work harder, but for a lot of people, it, it's quite disturbing to have fallen again. And then you have repentance. So really, repentance is the key, and that's what we're looking for. Again, having a guilty conscience is not necessarily a bad thing. It's the first part that should lead to repentance. People always just they kind of stop at the guilty conscience part. And even though they might, they being some religions of the world, uh, you know, I'm familiar with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and the way they, they word things, it makes it sound like they are being repentant, but in fact they're responding with guilt. Because true repentance leads one to acknowledge your sin, acknowledge how you have fallen short before God. Not just that I've messed up in some way, but you actually identify, you know what, God, you are perfect, and I have fallen short. You realize your sinful state. You realize how depraved you are. You also realize how sin separates you from a perfect God. And again, some of this has guilt laced through it, and a lot of people will go up to this point and still stop and then try to do something themselves. But true repent repentance drives us to confess and forsake our sins by turning to God. Lord, I've, I've messed up. If you're saved, you go, go before the Lord. Lord, I've messed up. Please forgive me for doing this. If you don't know Jesus, if you've never accepted him into your life, I'm actually doing the kind of the end in the middle here. Um, if you don't know Jesus, acknowledging that, you know what, yes, I'm, I'm a sinner. I need you. I need you to forgive me. I need you to fill my life. 
And that is true repentance. It's turning to God, acknowledging that you can't do it yourself. You don't have the ability to do it yourself. You can't pay for your own sins. And if you're ever curious, go through the Old Testament and note uh, the process for dealing with sin during that time. It was you had to make a sacrifice. You had to kill an animal, and then that would be offered up as a sacrifice in your place. Why? Because sin requires death of some sort, either of the sinner or, in the Old Testament's case, temporarily through the, uh, the atonement of an animal. But that was only temporary. We have... Christ, who is our ultimate atonement today. So again, repentance. Humbling your heart before God, I listed Psalm 51.1 through 4, uh, where it says, that's a famous psalm where David is, he's, he has sinned with Bathsheba. He's ignored it for a period of time. And now he's finally coming before the Lord and saying, okay, I've I've really, really messed up. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Again, that is true repentance, going before God and saying, Lord, I, I have no way to atone for this sin. You have to wash me clean. And God always looks at the heart. Because if you read this part in Nehemiah, you might think, well, like, okay, they were repentant for their sin, but why did God respond the way he did? When in other places in Scripture, God was like, yeah, that's right, you should be repentant. Now go wear sackcloth and sit in ashes for a period of time. This was a different response. And again, God looks at the heart of the people. In Psalm 51, a few verses later, 16 through 17, for, David says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, the sacrifices of God, or a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Even in David's case, that was where the forgiveness came in, when he repented, turned from his sin, and said, Lord, I need you to wash me clean. So we move on to joy. We need joy. In fact, we are commanded to have joy. Uh, Commanded both in the Old Testament, as it says in Nehemiah, in one place, uh, all through the Psalms. And then if you go to Galatians, uh, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, through 25. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But note the first few, love, joy, peace, etc., So we are commanded to have that. Quick note, there is a difference between joy and happiness. Uh, Joy and happiness differ in this. Uh, You can be happy while having joy, um, but 
Happiness does not necessarily bring joy. Happiness relies more on an external uh, level in that uh, I feel happy when uh, I'm out camping with my family, uh, which we did this last weekend, hence the, the red face. Um, I am happy when good things happen. I am not happy when things don't go my way, when I have a rough week, when I have a rough day, when I have a rough morning, whatever, when I wake up on the wrong side of the bed, just whatever your circumstance. Happiness relies on something external to make you feel good. Whereas joy comes from within. It actually, the true source of joy is, of course, God. And so when you have Christ living in your heart, he makes that joy available to you. But joy is not always easy to get. It's not always easy to attain. It's not always easy to show, you might say. And why is that? I think I touched on last time. One of the fallacies is thinking that joy is something attainable in the sense of, you know, now that I have it, I have it. I can stick it in my tool belt, and I've always got it. I've attained. I have been perfected in that area. I now have absolute joy, which we do have access to absolute joy, but it doesn't work that way. It's not like, oh, I'm having a rough day, so pull out joy, and bing, I am now a shining beacon of joy. That's not quite how it works. Uh, in fact, a lot of times, I will be convicted that I don't have joy. And I'm like, that's okay. It's okay if I don't have joy because I'm enjoying the fact that I'm not joyful right now. And God's like, well, no, you know, again, conviction coming in. He's like, no, I, I, I want to be frustrated. And so that's the war between our flesh and our spirit, or rather God's spirit, who lives in us. And so again, joy is not something that you just you immediately have, and it's just it's always there. And it's like uh, I compared it last time to a game power up. It's not like you know, okay, I've attained level forty, and you know, I've just ah, I got that power up, and now I'm shining all the time. That doesn't work. Uh, it is part of our sanctification, though. And so, as we go through things, as we go through trials, as we experience frustrations. That's where God's conviction comes in, and his Holy Spirit begins to change us and remind us to be joyful. And again, it's not, and we'll get into this in just a few minutes, but it's not, okay, be joyful. So I'm bent down, and I lace up my boots, and I will be joyful, because God says to be joyful. Uh, again, that's not how it works. So, True joy comes from within and exists despite our circumstances. Joy comes from God through many difficult circumstances. Sometimes God uses uh, difficult circumstances to, again, remind us that we need his joy, that we need his peace. Uh, if we go back to the fruit of the Spirit, note how that is in the singular form. It doesn't say fruits of the Spirit as in, okay, well, you're going to be given love, and you're going to be given joy, and you're going to be given peace. And hopefully you guys can get together and, you know, like, be awesome together. That's not how it works. 
we're filled with his spirit who develops the fruit of God in our lives. And that's every aspect. It's love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of those aspects of God, the fruit of him being in our lives is listed there in Galatians. And so they really do rely on one another in order to be complete. And so that's why I say joy comes from God. You can't have joy without love, and you can't have joy without peace. In fact, in Psalm 116, the psalmist says, I love the Lord, for he has heard my voice, my appeal for mercy. Note kind of the repentance thing also. Because he inclined his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The ropes of death entangled me. The anguish of Sheol overcame me. I was confronted by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, deliver my soul. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord preserves the simple-hearted. I was helpless, and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul. For the Lord has dealt, or has been good to you. I have dealt bountifully with you in my mind. For those of you who have heard that song. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted. In my, arm I, in my alarm I said, all men are liars. How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Truly, O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your handmaid. You have broken my bonds. You will offer, I will offer to you a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people in the courts of the Lord's house. In your midst, O Jerusalem, hallelujah. That whole psalm really kind of wraps up, in one sense, this, this whole sermon. We have a repentance aspect. We have a man calling out to God and saying, God, save me. I'm struggling with sin. I'm struggling with fear. I'm struggling with people slandering me with just various aspects. That's what's encouraging about reading through the Psalms is invariably you're going to find a Psalm that you go, wow, he's going through, he went through exactly what I'm going through right now. He's expressing how I feel right now. Note how he says in one verse, I believed, I believed, therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted. It's easy to not have that joy when your eyes are on yourself, when your eyes are on your circumstances and not on God. That's why he says, return to your rest, O my soul. Who is your rest? What is your rest? As life is busy, as it's full of things that can easily wear you out. And oftentimes there, is, there are no periods of real rest that you can say, okay, I'm going to just take a step back and breathe a little bit. You read through the New Testament. Uh, you'll find instances where Jesus would go, okay, I'm going to go away to the hills and I'm going to go pray. And the crowd would follow him and would just continue to press about him. 
he didn't get a break a lot of times. He didn't get rest, but he still responded with love and compassion despite being uh, essentially run into the ground by the people. Where is your rest? Where do you get rest? Where do you get your peace from? And again, this does tie into joy because that is how you get strength from God. You have to surrender first to him. A lot of times it requires surrendering your circumstance to him, uh, the moment to him. And you'll find he gives you peace. But you get your joy by doing what? Go down into Acts chapter 16. This is the famous chapter where Paul and Silas were thrown into prison. And the confounding part, after they have been thrown into not just you know, prison, we think of prison today, you know, county jail, uh, you know, they get their, their three square meals a day and their TV and et cetera. Uh, that was not the case for Paul and Silas. They were in a dungeon, and it says that the jailer threw them into the innermost dungeon, which in that uh, day and time was actually oftentimes a giant pit in the ground. Uh, they would literally be chained up and thrown into the pit. After being beaten, chained up, and thrown into this dungeon, it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And then, of course, you have where God comes and miraculously rescues them via an earthquake, all because he wants to save the jailer, maybe some of the prisoners, uh, and just the people who are involved in Paul and Silas's life. But note that Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. They were praising God. And a lot of times that is how you deal with tough circumstances. God, I don't like this. I don't understand it. But I'm going to give it to you. And then I'm going to sing your praises. How easy is it to sing God's praises when you are frustrated, depressed, etc.? So the peace of God, we'll touch on real quick. There it is, <laughs> in my notes. Isaiah 26.3. Isaiah talking to God. God, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And then in John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Our peace, our joy, our strength needs to come from the Lord. Needs to be built upon his promises. Needs to be built upon what he has done for us. Moving on. Can you advance the slide for me? There we go. Oop. I entitled the section Eating at the Table or Eat at the Table of Christ. Uh, and this is where we go back to Nehemiah 8:10. Then Nehemiah said to them, Go and eat what is rich. Drink what is sweet, and send out portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, 
for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Again, note God's response. So we've dealt with the repentance part. And God says, go eat. God doesn't just say, go eat, drink, and be merry. Or just go eat, fill yourselves. Okay, you're good. Just go home. Relax. God says, eat what is rich and drink what is sweet. In other words, eat the best that I have to give to you. And of course, send out portions to those who have none. Really, this is our life in Christ. God says, come to my table, and I will give you what is rich, what is sweet. Not as the world gives you, not as you, what you can make up on your own, but what I give you. What I give you is best. And what I give you will fill you, give you strength, give you joy, give you peace. Come to my table, eat my fruit, be satisfied. In Psalm 34, 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And this ties into John 6, verses 48, verses 55 through 57. We'll kind of skip around in there. This is in John. This is uh, where Jesus kind of gets in people's faces in one sense and says, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. It was in response to their grumbling, to their murmuring of like, who does this guy think he is? And Jesus was being purposefully almost offensive in one sense. But he was doing so by presenting them a spiritual truth because they were so physically minded. They were taking everything on a physical level and they would not hear God's truths to apply to their lives that it was, I'm going to present to you a truth and you're going to take it entirely the wrong way because you're not listening. But Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And he goes on to say, For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Again, a spiritual truth. This is the fruit that God is offering. This is the food that God is offering. It's Jesus. In other words, tap into my strength. Accept me into your life. Let me fill you. Let me give you life. Let, me, let my spirit dwell with your spirit so I can change you into my likeness. That was the point of this. It was a parallel. As food gives you strength and as food builds your body, and heals your body, so too Christ in our lives fills us, heals us, and makes us able to overcome. In Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 through 7, it says, Then the eyes of the, of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. Referring to when the Messiah comes. This is what's going to happen. Again, not necessarily physically. Although when Christ was here, this was fulfilled. In that the lame leapt. The deaf could hear, the, the blind could see. 
But this also applies to us, more importantly, spiritually, because as Jesus went through and healed people, if you read through the Gospels, note how as when he would heal people, it wasn't just a physical aspect. He wasn't just here to make everybody feel good. He wasn't just here to cure all of our woes physically and ah, we will live happily ever after because we still live in a fallen world. God raised Lazarus, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and then he died again later. Jesus would heal people and unfortunately later on they would probably get sick and die. It wasn't necessarily the healings that were the focus. It was the, you know, the physical healings. It was the healing inside. It was the healing of the heart. Uh, every time Jesus would heal somebody, he would make a statement, your faith has made you well. It's not just, you know, I have faith so I can claim it and it's mine. It was a faith of the heart. It was putting their trust in Jesus of who he said he was. And that's what made them well. It was well with inside. The physical was to show everybody else what happened. And that last part, the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And this ties back into Nehemiah where it says, um, send out portions to those who have nothing prepared. When Christ is in your life, when you're eating of the good things of God, when you are partaking of him, when regularly partaking of him, he will overflow in your life like a spring. Have you ever seen a spring, especially since we live in the desert out here? It's a fascinating thing to go hiking in this arid, dry land, to go up into a canyon, round the bend, and whoa, lo and behold, there's a spring of water there. And you know there are trees, and there's a pool. It's fascinating. What's even more fascinating is it's a flowing spring that pools up. And sure, it only goes so far because the desert sand eventually sucks it up. And... But as a, it's a flowing spring. You can't stop it. If you were to try to stop it up, it would find another way to bubble up and continue flowing out. And so too, the Holy Spirit in our lives does that. The love of Jesus in our lives does that. It's like a flowing spring. The more we are tapped into him, the more we overflow with him. The more we spend time with him, the more we overflow with him. Making record time here for me. Takeaways. That leads into uh, Acts 4.13b. And when the apostles were talking to the people, the people made a statement that they had recognized that these men had been with Jesus. That's, a, that's an amazing statement. Why did they recognize that these men had been with Jesus? Well, for one thing, they were, most of the apostles were your common everyday worker. They were the laborers. They were the fishermen. They, were, they weren't, you know, PhD welders. They were, you know, wielders. There we go. Do you have a PhD when you weld? Anyway. Um, so these men were uneducated in the sense of 
some of the high scholars of the day, but they spoke with a boldness and even an eloquence that wouldn't normally come from a normal person like that. So that was one way that they had been, uh, that they recognized they had been with Jesus. Something miraculous had changed them, but also how they spoke, how they looked, how they interacted with other people and with each other. Jesus says, people will know that you're mine by your love for each other. They loved each other. It's an amazing thing to interact with people in the church and find we have oftentimes such different backgrounds, such different interests, uh, different occupations, but we all have a common thread, a common foundation in Jesus. We can all come together as we are now to worship him, to get to know him more, to encourage each other. We'll have a meal at the end of the service today where we all gather together and fellowship with each other. That can only happen through Jesus, to take such a vast, diverse group of people and bring them together. It's there have been so many times to where there's been an incident and a prayer chain goes up. And I've heard of people all the way around the world, people in Africa, etc., praying for this one individual over here in the States. That doesn't happen normally. That only happens through Jesus. And it's a true prayer. It's not just, oh yeah, you know, we need, oh, I feel bad for that person. You know, my thoughts are with you today. It's not that type of thing. It's a true, deep, heartfelt prayer. People are lifting this person up in prayer or a family up in prayer, as the case may be. And again, that can only happen through Christ. That is the overflowing of the Holy Spirit. That is the overflowing of the love of Jesus. That's how they're recognized as being, having been with Jesus. And again, their, their demeanor towards people they weren't perfect. I'm sure they had grumpy days. I'm sure they had rough days. Paul talks about being thoroughly depressed at times. Great saints of old, Charles Spurgeon dealt with, for instance, dealt with uh, depression a lot of times. And he would talk about just the overwhelming feeling of depression. And really the only thing he had to hold on to was the fact that he knew Jesus loved him and he was safe in Jesus. And oftentimes, that's all we have to hold on to. Paul and Silas in prison, really, they had no idea that they were going to be released. In the normal course of events, they could have been there forever until they died. That was usually how it went. There were often people who were thrown into that dungeon, were often forgotten. Unless they had family members throwing them food, they were often forgotten. And so they would then die in that state. And so that was, that was the outcome they were looking at. But still, they were singing praises to God. Because what they had to hold on to was everlasting. They knew where their hope was. And that's, round it back, this is where we come to why we can uh, have joy in dark circumstances, in frustrating times, whatever the case may be. Because we have hope in Jesus. Jesus is always with us. He will never leave us or forsake us, as he says in Scripture. And we get to be with him for all eternity. And nothing can rob us of that. 
And so the question, do you have the essence of Jesus? Do people say, you know what, there's something unique about you? How do you get it? For those who who know Christ, the more time you spend with him, the more he conforms you into into his image. But it is a process. Again, it's, it's not power up in a game. It's an everyday walking it out, step by step. And oftentimes, as the psalm says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Note how it says unto my feet, not a mile down the road. It's one step at a time sometimes. God, I don't know where we're going or what's going on or why it has to be this way, but I will trust you with one step at a time. And that's where your joy can come in. Holding on to Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, you need to know him. Consider that he has made a way for you to live eternally in his presence and to have his joy and peace now in this very dark world. It's amazing to me to see, as much as I dislike some of the things that have happened uh, within our society, within our country, within our world, uh, the last few years, I am seeing people who were not open to the gospel before, suddenly going, you know what? It's really dark. And it's getting darker. Is it just me or is it getting darker? And then they start to realize that, you know what? There is a light. Maybe there's a God. And it's just, it's the step of God revealing that, you know what? Yes, you are in darkness. You need Jesus. In Psalm 28, 7, to close up, it says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. And that's why it says in Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul repeats himself. Rejoice always, not again, not when you feel good, not when things are going your way, but all the time. And I'll say it again, rejoice. But what do we rejoice in? We rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ. We, re- we rejoice in his promises. In the Psalms, it talks about looking back over what God has done and finding joy in that. When you can't see what's ahead, look at what God has done. And let him fill you with hope and peace and joy so you can go on one step at a time to where he has you to go. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, Father, we do thank you. We praise you. We do love you. Lord, help us this week as we go forth. Uh, Lord, I'm always reminded that This is a mission field. As we leave this building, Lord, we go out into the mission field. I pray that you would prepare us, Father, for the battles ahead this week. Give us strength and encouragement, Father. Protect us from harm and evil. Uh, Strengthen our hearts. Fill us with your joy and your peace. Uh, Father, I pray that we would overflow with you, Lord Jesus, that others would see you in us, that they would see the essence of you, and that we belong to you. Lord, that they would desire you because of that. 
as we live in a very dark world, Father, I pray that they would see your light in us. Uh, not only the world and our church, but our families as well, Lord, that we would live this out and walk with you daily, uh, Lord, that we would seek you earnestly and sing your praises continually. We do love you, Jesus. And again, we praise your holy name. Amen.